My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Uh, You know, when we think about just nicknames, they're kind of fascinating. Uh, I was thinking about that the last couple of weeks, you know, why we give people nicknames. Some are positive, some are negative, some are very easy to understand, some you have to know the story to get that one. And, and uh, you know, it's just the reality of our world that we like to give like a term of endearment or something as a moniker to wear as claim to fame. Uh, I, I don't understand all of them. I, I don't know that there's any rhyme or reason, any logic to some of them, you know, uh, Robert becomes Bobby, uh, John becomes Jack, uh, Margaret becomes Peggy. I did not know that. I, because, is Peggy here? I don't know, but I was talking to her earlier. Uh, Peggy Staggs, and I saw something about Margaret Staggs, and I, I, this is me. I, I looked and go, who's Margaret Staggs? Do we have like a new stag here, you know what I mean? And we got Staggs, and, and they go, that's Peggy. I go, that, that's the nickname? My mom's Margaret. I could have been calling her Peg all her life, and I didn't know that. Or Mom Peg, you know? Um, but it's kind of funny. We do have nicknames. Some of them make sense. Like in the 1920s, the Chicago gangster Al Capone became known as Scarface. Anybody want to guess why? Yeah, knife fight from a rival. Uh, Herman, this is a great one. George Herman Ruth, Jr.? Babe, absolutely. Or in Italian, the great Bambino, right? Okay, Babe Ruth. Uh, I would have never known who Edward Thatch was, but he was a notorious pirate with a long, flowing black beard. Black beard, absolutely. That's an easy one right there. Okay, I would have never been called black beard. I couldn't even grow one. Uh, so far, in both services, people have known who William Bonney is. Anybody? How do we know that? Is it like on TV? Okay, Billy the Kid. Uh, notorious, you know... Uh, Gunslinger fighter who, uh, as a young man, reportedly killed 21, so Billy the Kid, who was finally gunned down about 140 years ago by none other than Sheriff Pat Garrett. Clay, does he, has he told you that? That's one of his stories. Pat's actually really old. Okay, there was a different Sheriff Pat Garrett back then who uh, took down Billy the Kid. Um, Abraham Lincoln, Honest Abe, that makes sense, right? Uh, Ronald Reagan, when he came into power and, and, and rising in the, I, the Gipper, I'm like, what, in the, what is a Gipper? And then I had to watch the Newt Rockney story. It's like, okay, win one for the Gipper. Got that one down. Margaret Thatcher, I always loved her name, the Iron Lady. And that going against the Iron Lady would have been tough, right? Me, I was Jimbo which is not quite the Iron Man, okay, Uh, Jimbo. And and you can forget that after this service. Uh, No one's allowed to call me that. My my nieces actually are allowed to call me that. They call me Uncle Jimbo, which is awesome. I love that. When I was a youth pastor, I was called PJ for Pastor James, and so that was kind of a fun little name, PJ. My wife, I call her Mel, 
You, you, you shouldn't call her that because it doesn't make any sense. Unless you go back, when I met her, she was Mary Elizabeth Lee. And so I started calling her Mel. And that's just my name for her. I still call her Mel to this day, and which was great until I met her Uncle Mel. And that made, you know, passing the salt and pepper, Mel, could you serve that? Made really confusing meals, you know. Uh, when we had kids, we said, hey, let's name our kids some strong names, Bible names, and something that doesn't have a nickname. And so we have Josiah, and we have Noah, and we have Seth. And thanks to grandparents, it's Joe or Jojo and No and Sethers. I don't know. Or Seth Tone, one of those two. All right. Um, I don't know. Anybody here have a nickname other than Roger Dodger? Okay. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Obi-Wan. Dude. Oh, come on. I should stop the sermon right there. You won. Obi-Wan? That's like the name of all, you know? Okay. Anybody else? Lala, uh, Akimo, I don't know if you know Akimo, uh, one of our Hawaiians, his nickname was Tarzan. And I, I found that out in the service. I'm like, of course, you look at the guy, he's Tarzan, right? Wild man swinging from the vines, okay? Uh, did you know that Jesus had a nickname? He actually had a slanderous name. Somebody gave him the name. A group of people called him something that was a derogatory term. And in, in fact, it shows up in the New Testament, in the Gospels. It says, Jesus he was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, that was a negative, all right? That was uh, a pejorative statement. That was something that was supposed to shame him. That was supposed to correct him. That was supposed to condemn him. But that's not how Jesus took it. Jesus hung out with notorious tax collectors and sinners, with the worst of the worst, the least, the last, and the lost of his culture. And the religious people had only one way to see this, and that is because he hung out with them, he was like them, and therefore guilt by association. And yet we're going to see today that Jesus' heart for people drove him to love them, and they in turn loved him. It was actually a sign of success not scorn or shame. And Jesus wore that. Now, I, I speculate on this. I'm making this up, but I could just imagine when Jesus heard this, muttered through the crowd, he's a friend of sinners, that it was a sign of achievement of the goal and mission because that's what he came to do is to seek and to save those that were lost, right? And these are the lost of the lost, right? This is it. And Jesus didn't receive it as a complaint, but as a compliment. Why? Because that was his heartbeat, which then asks the question, is that our heartbeat? You know, it's one thing for, for you to call yourself a friend of someone, but if they look at you and say you're a friend, that means you've achieved something deep. And Jesus was truly a friend of sinners. I mean, what kind of God labels himself a friend of sinners? I mean, followers of Christ, we're often known as the judge of sinners, right? Uh, but a friend of sinners, is that what people would say about us? Friendship is far more important to God than we realize. We, we get all skewed in our head and our heart, and we think that God is interested in performance and perfection and some kind of purity that we can achieve. And the reality is it's a relationship. It's a, it's, it's a relationship. And yet we still skew it and we go, okay, I can have a relationship as a reward for doing good things. But the Bible clearly says it's not a reward. It is a gift. We cannot earn it. We cannot stand there and justify our behavior that somehow merited that. In fact, all we can do is just welcome it because we are the sinners of the world. We are the hurting and broken of the world. We are the lost of the world. And it's, it's one thing to consider yourself, you know, like 
among the wretched people and that God came to save, but, but to see yourself as the worst of the worst, the most wretched of all. I love the Apostle Paul because in his writings, he gets to that point and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. And in other words, if God can save me, there's hope for all of you, right? And I love that when we can look in the mirror and realize not that, well, we've done some good things and God could fill the gap with his love and mercy, but when we look in the mirror and realize even all my good stuff counts for nothing. He alone comes and he provides grace for me and he provides mercy and love and what the Bible calls salvation, that God alone has the power to perform the work on the cross for us and have it being done, that we don't have any performance. Now, now that we know him, we do get to know him, and a part of getting to know him is that we're changed and our lives are purified, but it's so important. Relationship comes first. Change follows. I grew up in a church system, in a church group, uh, in, in, a, in a Baptist sep- secondary separation group, I'll talk about more, that basically said you change first, clean yourself up, and then you can come to church and you can dress like us and look like us and sound like us and be like us and you'll be accepted like us, like we're accepted with God. But when you show up into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus, that's not how he did it. He went among the lowly, the worst, the, the bane of civilization, as it were, the crowd of people that the religious people would never spend time with. And he hung out with them and they hung out with him. And somehow, and it's, it's really hard to imagine, The holiest person ever to walk the planet was loved by the most unholy people who discovered salvation through Jesus Christ. And I wonder if that's what goes on in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools when people think of us. As you read the stories of Jesus, he went out of his way to befriend people who were shunned, who were labeled, who were rejected by society, and these people became his close followers. And what transformed them wasn't some performance plan they had him on. It was a relationship plan that he had him on. Jesus opened his heart to people. And in doing so, people had their hearts changed and then their lives changed. And I often wonder this, and I, I have to speak about myself on this one. But do we as a church serve people? I mean, I know we do. We're known for that. But do we serve people because we know them and love them? Or do we serve them to serve. But do we serve people that we have a relationship with? Do we take time to truly get to know people as we love them and serve them? Or is it really just we want to kind of keep them at a distance and be nice to them and be generous to them and somehow we get a reward for that? Are we truly humbling ourselves and knowing a person? Maybe you find yourself shunned. Maybe you find yourself labeled. Maybe you find yourself rejected by God. Maybe church is a new thing for you. And man, we're glad to have you amongst us because we are not perfect people. None of us are. We're far from that. We're broken people that have found healing and hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, We are people that were least and last and lost that Jesus showed up and began the process and changed. And as we often say, we're just like a beggar who's found some food and we're just introducing other beggars to the source of food because our lives are being changed as a result of that. Now, if you open your Bibles to Mark 2, that's what we're going to take a look at is a little story in Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. We're going to see the story of Jesus reaching out to one of those hurting and broken people, one of those worst of the worst guys. 
And, and, and to add insult to injury, he's going to start hanging out with them and all his friends. And he's, Jesus is going to get in trouble. I love the stories where Jesus gets in trouble. You know, it's like all the religious leaders swat his hands like, bad Jesus. You know, it's like, you're not doing it right. <laughs> but that's who religious people, you know, become like, right? And we're going to see this story. And a question that I, I want us to consider is, how much sin can God forgive? Really, truly. Because some of you are here, and you know he can forgive sins, but you're not sure about that one, or you're not sure of that category, could he truly forgive those sins? Or to ask it another way, how deep and how wide is the love and grace and forgiveness of God? Is it wide enough to extend its arms around you? Is it deep enough to reach down to the depths of your sin and brokenness? And the Bible says it it is, and we'll see that today in, in Jesus. And we're gonna see that Today, God expects us to extend love to those people because we are those people. And in doing so, we experience true, true hospitality. Well, it says in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Now, uh, just a couple thoughts on this. We, we know this. We've talked about this. Jesus did ministry in Israel. Israel has basically a couple parts. In the south, there's Jerusalem, the temple. And Jesus did show up there at times. But mostly, we see all his ministry up at the top in this area called Galilee, around this sea or this lake of Galilee. And at the top of that was this little town called Capernaum and the surrounding towns. That's where Jesus based his ministry out of. It's not a very big place. If you go there today, we've got an Israel trip uh, into next year. You could walk there. You could wander among places. But the fact is, if you take our auditorium and maybe triple it in size, that's about how big the size is. It's not a very big place. So um, everybody would have known everybody, in other words. And so somehow, we don't know the story. Levi would have heard about Jesus. Maybe he would have seen Jesus from afar. Maybe like Zacchaeus, who's another tax collector that saw Jesus, uh, you know, he had to stay at a distance. Zacchaeus ended up climbing up in a tree, first of all, because he was a short guy. Uh, but he also had to stay separated from the crowd as a bad person that he was. And so somehow, Levi, he had to have known something about Jesus. Because that area was populated by people that were traveling in and out. Uh, people from the north and Damascus, that, that great business city, uh, which really doesn't exist much anymore, unfortunately, because of war after war. But Damascus was the place that the Apostle Paul uh, was saved on the road to. People would come down with their commerce, and they would travel through Capernaum. It was the gateway into Jerusalem or, or into Israel or out of Israel. People from Jerusalem would come up or from the coastal plains, maybe from Egypt, they would walk up, and they would pass through this road. Road, and it was a perfect place to set up shop if you were a, a person that had poll taxes or travel taxes or some kind of taxes you would collect. And so all the importing, all the exporting, all the business, all the trade, you would just have a heyday just pulling money from that. Somebody brought in some you know, fruit from the top and they're heading down in some city to sell it. It's like, I need some money for that one. And you had the power of Rome behind you to extract whatever money you could. And, and so this is Levi, he's a tax collector, and he's grabbing money off of people, and he's, he's gaming the system, and he's using it to his benefit. That's what tax collectors did. And as we think about this, we think about his name, it's a fascinating name. Levi actually has a great meaning. It means to be joined or associated with. And when you think about it in the Old Testament, that's a perfect name because Levi, the tribe of Levi, the Levites, they were the ones who were joined 
or associated with God, right? They were the leaders of the temple. They were the priests. They were the ones that carried everything and set it up and tore it down. They were the ones that you would go through to get to God. They would offer sacrifices on your behalf. They stood there and they experienced the holiness of God, the presence, the cloud by day, the fire by night. These were the ones that were joined and associated with the worship of God, right? And yet this guy, that's not truth at all. That's not truth. When you would name your, your child, specifically a son, in, in Bible days, you would name him with the hope that he would live up to his name, living up to his name. My wife and I did that with all of our sons. And, and you think about that, it's like, I want you to become this person. And you can imagine mom and dad giving birth to this boy and naming him Levi to be joined or associated with God and for him to grow up one day and to be joined or associated not with God, but with Rome, with the enemy that he was joined and associated with corruption. He was joined and associated as a collaborator with the enemy, that he was a turncoat, that he was, in our terminology, he was a Benedict Arnold, and he would rather take a paycheck and live high off on the hog than live with his people in subjection to Rome. And so this guy joined and associated with the wrong crowd and the wrong group, and it was the greatest sin of all. As a side note, Mark's the only gospel that calls him Levi. The others call him Matthew, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, But he would have been really despised by his people because he would have extorted his people, he would have overcharged them, and he would have been hated amongst all. And if you were a zealot, if you were somebody who was basically a religious terrorist and you would have a a nice little sword by your side and you would hide it there uh, in your cloak and, and you would go through the crowd, it would be your pride and joy to be able to kill a tax collector, or to kill a Sadducee, someone who basically kind of played both sides of the fence in the temple, or to kill a Herodian, or to, or to kill a Roman, right? If you could find them alone or in, deep in a crowd and you stick them and you know that you had done something great for God. And yet now all of a sudden, he's following God himself, Jesus. And you, you can see the other followers of Jesus. I mean, this had to create incredible tension I mean, we accept a lot of people, Jesus, and you've, you've drawn a lot of people, but that guy, a tax collector, this is the first of the tax collectors that began to follow Jesus, the Gospels tell us. And you can just imagine that as they're going through the countryside and Matthew or Levi's following along and then there's a bunch of other fishermen and this and that and kind of the riffraff of the culture and then there's a zealot, Simon, okay? Does he still have his blade? I don't really know, you know? But later on we see someone's got a knife, you know? It's like Peter cuts off somebody's ear. It's like that's kind of the people, right? And then it's like, okay, Jesus, what are you gonna do? Okay, so Levi, uh, Simon, you bunk together tonight over here under this tree. <laughs> it's like you know they're both keeping their eyes open, Right? Because this is a dangerous proposition to be joining in with Jesus' group. And then the religious people, they can't understand it. How, how could he do such a thing? How could he associate himself with that? It says later, uh, Levi then, and, and Matthew tells us it's that day, but later Levi invite Jesus, invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I like this. And this is a great, <laughs> this is so great. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. What a great parenthetical thought. By the way, that's who Jesus hung out with, right? Isn't that great? That's wonderful. That tells you the heartbeat of Jesus. There were a lot of low people hanging around with Jesus, right? Because he loved them, and he befriended them, and he built a friendship and a relationship with them. Oh, but it, man, it really upset the religious people. When the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, uh, they, they saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, They asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Well, that's a self-righteous attitude, right? 
I mean, I, I, I mean, have you looked at me and how many commands I've obeyed, how much I've given to the temple and how many tithes and offerings and the great prayers I've given out in the city streets and the, and the announcement of all my good things? I mean, have you seen how I'm dressed and I've got the word of God tied to my forehead and on my arm and I do all the prayers and I mean, I teach in the synagogues. I mean, of course God loves me. Have you seen me? I'm pretty awesome, okay? But you, man, you're beyond hope, right? That's, that's how they saw this situation. And here you've got this incredible tension going on that Jesus is actually dining with tax collectors. I mean, think about this. Because of the problems associated with tax collectors, rabbis, the religious people, they had rules and they had assignments and they had prohibitions and a couple of them. One was that if you were a tax collector, you could not, you could not uh, testify as a trustworthy person because you weren't trustworthy. If all of a sudden a crime was committed, you're looking around, it's like, who, who witnessed that? I did. Sorry, you're a tax collector. You're not even truthful. Throw that person aside, right? And a tax collector could never experience true repentance. That's what they said. Because there's always a string attached to that one. There's always a hook. There's always a reason. There's always some, you know, payola under the table, right? There's got to be a reason. You can't trust him and you could never truly repent. That's who Jesus hangs out with. And Jesus not only called one of them to follow him, he willingly went to his home for a meal with his friends. And as a sign of true repentance, and as a sign of true appreciation for his new life, Levi, or otherwise known as Matthew, invites Jesus to a meal, serves up a meal, has all his tax collector friends there, and then the Pharisees, the religious people, show up, and they just are horrified at the sight of Jesus in the home of so many tax collectors and sinners. And he's the guest of honor, and he's receiving it, right? From their perspective, these people were beyond hope. Who in your world today is beyond hope. What class of people, what group, what category, what name, what title uh, could God never reach? I know we're in church, we go, oh, he can reach anybody. But come on, I hear this in our culture a lot. I hear this in our world tonight a lot. I hear this where people say, okay, we can all experience this, but that person can never change. Have you ever said that about someone? They could never change. We have categories. That is a culture. We look at that category of people and go, but they could never change because they are beyond any sort of redemption. Maybe somebody said that about you. Maybe you have people in your, in your family, in your life, that you look at that person and go, if, if God saved 1,000 people, he'd never save that one, right? I mean, the, the, at work or at school or, or wherever, look at the person, you go, okay, a lot, I could imagine God could do a lot, but that person, I can never imagine that person coming. That's who Jesus hung out with. And that's who found a relationship with God because Jesus hung out with them. The very name of the Pharisees, as Pastor Jack shared last week, is this idea of being separated. They separated from sin. The Bible tells us to do that, right? But they not only separated from sin, they separated from anybody who wouldn't separate from sin. So you had this secondary separation. That's the church group that I grew up with and came to Christ in. And so eventually you separate from everybody who isn't really good and better and the best, and finally you get yourself. And the old joke, and I've shared this before, is that you'll be the only one standing. You'll even separate from your spouse because, come on, you know them, right? You know, your friends... You're you're the only one that's wholly left. That's the mentality, the self-righteous mentality of the Pharisees. You know, it started with a great idea, as Jack shared last week, but came to become rules and, and regulations and all these rituals and requirements, and they forgot the very relationship that started it. Now, Pharisees had a teaching, the religious people had a teaching, and it was oral teaching, it finally got written down, and uh, this is what it says. It says, if tax collectors entered a house 
all within it became unclean. People may not be believed that they say we entered, but we touched nothing. Imagine that. Isn't that cool? It's like you got tax collector cooties just flying in the air, you know? There's germs everywhere. And it's like, so what did you do? Yeah, Mama, I, I st- on the way home from school, I had to stop over the tax collector house to get some, ah, tax collector, you're, you go, go, get, go to a priest, get some holy water on you or something. You're dirty, right? Or, you know what, he came by and his car broke down and, and I, I, I let him use my jack. Well, then did you burn the jack afterwards? Because the jack is forever tarnished, all right? And, and you remember that story in John 4 where Jesus asked for a cup of water from the Samaritan woman, and she replies, hold on, paradigm shift here. You're asking to drink out of my cup? Because you know that Jews don't put their lips to the same cups that Samaritans drink from because you'll get our Samaritan cooties. And that's exactly how the Pharisees looked at Samaritans and the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the people caught in adultery and all the worst of the worst people, right? And Jesus somehow loved them and embraced them and came close to them because he knew that he had a different kind of environment that would change the person. Now, from the religious perspective, Jesus corrupted himself by spending time with these sinners. From Levi's perspective, he wanted his friends to meet his new friend Jesus and his rabbi. And from Jesus' perspective, these were the very people he came to reach, people that had been discarded from society because they were too evil to be given a second chance. And basically, you've got two groups, one group of people who know they're never going to be good enough to make it, and one group of people who think they're too good and they've already made it, and both groups clash in the middle of this meal because they're invited in to see this story. And you've got the pimps and the prostitutes and the pushers all partying with Jesus, right, in our culture hanging out with the worst of the worst. It says, when Jesus heard this, this goes back to the story, it wraps it up. He told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Thank you. I mean, you know what? That's, you can quote that. You can, you can put that on the Wall Street Journal and nobody would say that's the Bible because healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Wow, that's a spiritual lesson right there. I mean, really, truly, right? What is he saying? Look at this. I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners get that. If you, if you think you're righteous, you think you're healthy. And hey, I don't need anything because I'm a healthy person. I don't need a doctor. The Bible calls God the great physician. Jesus is the great physician. But you don't need the great physician if you're healthy or you think you're healthy. But if you're sick and if you have a terminal disease and it's going to end in death, you call out to the doctor, right? You call out to the great physician. You call out to Jesus and he heals you. He's the only one that can truly diagnose your condition and call you to himself and the only one who has the prescription for healing, which he paid for himself on his death on the cross, right? And he offers the cure freely to you because he's paid the price. But healthy people, they don't need a doctor. Sick people do. People that think they're fine, they think they're fine. And they're not. And they're still dying. But those who know they're dying are calling out for help and they're finding life in Jesus. I love the contrast. People who know they're not good enough finally getting the cure and those who think they're good enough never getting the cure. Look at that in our lives today. Look at that in our hearts today. Because I think this division still exists in the world, in our culture, in our churches, in our hearts. 
I mean, on one hand, you've got a group of people who have all but destroyed their lives and they're really bent on destroying everybody else's life, making life miserable for themselves and others. I mean, they're lying and they're stealing and they're cheating and they're doing all the things. They're committing all the crimes and they're doing all these things that are horrific and they're like spiraling down, 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 further down. And we just stand there and watch them spiral, right? And you got all the good religious people or at least the people that go to church or check the box in America that say they're Christian. Good middle class people that pay their taxes and they, you know, they have a home and they have a mortgage and they have all this and then they have the cars and they have the homes and they have all, everything and we're like, okay, we're making it, we're doing it. Okay, we're at least trying to achieve something and there's nothing wrong with that unless we think that that somehow makes us good moral people because it doesn't. We have the worst of the worst in our heart if we're willing to accept it and admit it. And we all need a Savior in Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes into the room and when he walked into that room that day, his grace was enough for Levi. His grace was enough for the tax collectors and for the sinners. His grace was enough for the Pharisees. And when Jesus walks into the room today, his grace is enough for the best person in the room and for the worst person in the room and everybody in between. Because we like to think of ourselves as better than, right? We like to think of ourselves as at least a notch above those other people. And we've already categorized in our heart who those people are that are down the line. And we've categorized who our people are that are up the line. Truth is, Jesus loves sinners. People's lives are totally messed up and who are willing to admit it. His grace doesn't justify the sin. He doesn't leave us in a life of sin. But he pays for the sin and gives us a brand new life. And it's not until you accept that truth that you're the, not just among the worst, the worst, but you are the worst, that you're a recipient for the healing from Dr. Jesus. Oh. When we choose God, we reach out to him for this healing. It changes us. And it should change every room we walk in. The atmosphere of the room should change. The environment should change. The conversation should change. Because we have a hope. And we have a life. And we can offer that freely to people. But only those who have come face to face with their own sinfulness and struggle could ever hang out with people who are sinful and struggling and really love them and accept them. Uh, Bonhoeffer wrote this in Life Together, one of my favorite books. He wrote this beautiful passage which so exemplifies Sunrise Church. He says, the Christian community should not be governed by self-justification. That would be like the Pharisees, right? Which violates others, but by justification, by grace, which serves others. That's our heartbeat right there. We were just one beggar, again, telling other beggars where we found food. That's, it's, it's not us. We didn't create the food. We didn't make the food. We didn't buy the food. We just found the food, right? And so we're readily going out to other people to introduce them to the food. Once individuals have experienced the mercy of God in their lives, from then on they desire only to serve. The proud throne of the judge no longer lures them. Instead, they want to be down among the wretched and lowly because God found them down there themselves. As Romans 12, 16 says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. This is the great divide, my friends. You either feel like you're the judge and you're better than, you're self-justified, man-made, or you realize you're the lowest of the low and you found it and so you can't extend enough grace and mercy to people because it was extended to you. One of my favorite verses about this and kind of draw it to a close, is found in Luke 15. Luke 15, Jesus tells those great stories about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. But it starts with this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners. Sinners, by the way, was this general category of people of the land, people who just, they were never going to make it. They're just the outcasts, right? Just kind of wipe them off the face of the census. We don't want to know about those people, right? Because they're just the bad people. 
They were coming near to him, to Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes of the teachers of the law there, they began to grumble, mumble, complain, and murmur, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is fascinating because the word receives there has this implication of invites them to his table. So not only does he go to their table, he goes to Levi's table, that he sets the table and invites them to come to him, that Jesus freely receives sinners and he eats with them, which, my friend, is the best news you could ever hear, that he still receives sinners. He still has a table with a seat prepared for you and for me and welcomes you to come and eat with him. That is the beauty of this Jesus. And, and as you eat with someone, you're identifying with someone. In that culture, in the, in the, the Middle East, even today, or in the ancient Near East, if you dined with somebody, you were accepting someone or you were trying to be accepted by someone. And so you would only eat with people at your level or if you were invited above, you would go there. But you would never, ever, ever dine with someone below you because you had this status, you had this caste, you had this level system. Or as C.S. Lewis calls it in The Weight of Glory, uh, this inner ring, this desire to be in that group. You know what it is, right? I mean, if you don't remember back junior high and high school, come on, you know, hang out with one for a while. You know, it's like, I want to be with that crowd. I got to be with that group, right? If, if you don't even remember this, remember like where you ate in junior high or high school, right? The tables, that's the story right there of the inner ring. I'm not going to go down with the geeks and freaks, right? I don't want to do that. I, I want to hang out with some people that are safe. Or if you dare, if you dare show up to the cheerleader table, or to the jock table. And if you get welcomed and you're like, oh, I had the best day ever. Why? How was school? I don't know, but I got to sit at that table because now I'm in. Now I'm in that group, right? Because they accept me. That's called this inner ring that we long for that. My friends, Jesus left the greatest inner ring in all of eternity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and he came down into our world and welcomed us to his table. And the reality is he loves us. He's crazy about us. And the worst thing that could ever be thought of from the religious people's perspective is for Jesus to be a friend of sinners, for Jesus to receive sinners, and he still is a friend of sinners, and he still receives sinners, and he invites us to befriend sinners and receive sinners and to welcome the least and the last and lost into our heart. That's called hospitality. In fact, the word hospitality is a fascinating word because it just means this. It means the love of the stranger. The love of the stranger. And so uh, if you were to hang out with someone today who's your friend, if you were to invite them over to your home, someone from church, someone from work, someone you know, and you say, hey, I had some hospitality, I extended hospitality, you're a liar because that's not hospitality. You're deceived. That's not hospitality. You know what it means to love someone who's different from you? The word stranger, it, it literally means someone who's strange. I mean, look around. Look at the people here. There's some, there's some weird people here today. And they're strange. But go out of this building. They're even stranger. Go to the street. Go to the bar. Go to the mission. Go to the place that you go, but that person's just too different from me. Economically, racially, socially, uh, linguistics, I don't know what it is, culturally, they're, they're just different from me. And when you love that person, not just tolerate them, not just go and serve them, but when you love that person, you are practicing true biblical hospitality. In fact, the word was used this way, to let a stranger, someone who's strange, someone who's a little odd, a little off from you, into your home. To let a stranger sit at your table, to feed them. To let a stranger have one of your beds. We live in a culture of fear and suspicion. We'd never let someone into our home, right? We have door locks. 
We have alarms. We have security systems. We have garage door openers that cocoon us and keep us safe. We don't need, live in neighborhoods. We live in strangerhoods, right? That's the reality for you and for me. We don't know anybody anymore. But biblical hospitality is inviting people into your heart, which requires that you invite them into your home. Jesus said that he had no place to lay his head. So Jesus relied on the hospitality of others when he was on the earth. Jesus was rejected by the elite. He was crucified outside the gates of the city in the garbage dump, outside where the unclean bodies were laid. Jesus was so poor that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. But Jesus' act of hospitality cost him his very life. And now, his death on the cross is paid for the seat at his table. And you have a seat and you are invited to the table. He was an outcast so you could be brought in. He reached out to us to bring us into his family. And the ultimate act of hospitality was giving his life for us. We were the strangers and he invites us in. And so you have Levi who's sick and dying and Jesus comes up to him and says, follow me. And all Levi can think about is, I got the cure to cancer. I'm going to tell all my friends. And now all they have the cure and they're exposed to Jesus. And yet it was the religious people who refused the cure to the deepest sin of all. Jesus is the great physician. He's the great diagnoser of the true problem in our heart. And he alone has the cure. And he's given him to us through his life. Let me close with this thought. Uh, sometime later, we don't know all the story, but Levi's name became Matthew. You know what Matthew means? Isn't that cool? A gift of God. That's what Matthew means. A gift of God. To go from being joined or associated with evil to being the very gift of God. And you can get a new name, my friends. Uh, you know, maybe think of yourself. You got a nickname, Matt, right? Because I'm now the gift of God. I now have been given a new opportunity for life that God has extended his hospitality to me. Why would we not sit at that table? Why would we not welcome him into our lives, into our hearts? Why would we not cry out to him and reach out to him as the great physician because he alone has the cure? We talk about this a lot at sunrise. We do this a lot at sunrise. What the Bible just says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. You have a brand new relationship. Because when you confess it out there with your mouth, you're declaring it to be true. When you're believing it in your heart, you are receiving, truly receiving this message and it's offered to you. We, as a family, we offer hospitality and we extend and I've shared this. We open up our home, we have a spare room and we have different people who've come and live with us throughout the years. And So I'm not gonna ask you to do something that, that we don't do as a family. And I'm not gonna ask you to do something that our church doesn't do because I don't know if you, you know, consider this, but in two weeks from tomorrow, we're gonna open up our home, our church, to 55 men and women who will sleep here every night for 90 consecutive days. And, and that's called hospitality. And if you've ever hung out at the shelter, it's a beautiful opportunity to meet strange people. I mean, people different from you, right? People just different. That means they're strange. That doesn't mean that's bad. It just means they're different. They're, they're, they're different than you are, and that's a beautiful thing. That's the beauty of this culture we live in. We have a lot of differences that we can embrace and receive and welcome and introduce Jesus in the middle of that relationship. We get to open up our very church to be a place of hospitality. We get to give them a great dinner and a shower and a wonderful dry, safe bed at night and a breakfast in the morning. 
We get to love them that way. But lately, we've been able to do something new. We've been able to extend hospitality out from our church and into our church through Meals on Wheels with meals, over 100 meals that go out on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays delivered to places, seniors, and also then on Tuesdays and Thursdays where people come in. And we just took a little bit of time. I sat with Gloria Cox, one of our Sunrise gals, who is uh, heading this up here in Hillsboro, and I want you to watch this video. Hi, my name is Gloria Cox, and I've been attending Sunrise Church for about five or six years now with my daughter, Raina. I've served in children's ministry and even with the SOS shelter. I am the nutrition program manager for Meals on Wheels Hillsboro Center, which is now located inside Sunrise Church. The vision of Meals on Wheels is that no senior would go hungry or experience social isolation. Um, Meals on Wheels delivers meals to homebound seniors, 60 and over. We deliver nutritious meals, and we do so using a host of volunteers um, who use their own cars and their own gas and their own time to deliver meals and visit shut-ins. I first became aware of Meals on Wheels as a child. My mother, who was um, a great volunteer anywhere she was needed, she and a friend realized that there was a need in the community for meals to seniors. They cooked meals out of their kitchen, they wrapped them in newspaper, and they delivered them to three or four shut-in seniors at home um, who sometimes didn't really need the meal, they just needed the the social outlet. They needed someone to come and visit them. And my mom, being like me, was happy to provide that for them. I used to go with her to the classroom that they had set up at a school during the summer. And I used to sit and visit with the seniors and play dominoes with them and do crafts with them and and had a really good time. I love what I do because I get to facilitate probably more than 80 volunteers that go out and touch people each day. They touch them with love. A meal, yes, but that personal touch and that conversation and just something that touches the heart of our clients. And, and I get to be a part of that. Nobody should be alone. We provide food and we provide friendship for some people who would otherwise be without it. <laughs> 